This is chapters 18 through 20 of The Sincere Huron, or L'Ingenue, by Voltaire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It is recorded here by Roy Schreiber. Chapter 18. She Delivers Her Lover and a Jansenist. At daybreak she flew to Paris, the minister's mandate. It would be difficult to depict the agitations of her mind in this journey. Imagine a virtuous and noble soul, humbled by its own reproaches, intoxicated with tenderness, distracted with the remorse of having betrayed her lover, and elated with the pleasure of releasing the object of her adoration. Her torments, her conflicts, her success, by turns engaging her reflections. She was no longer that innocent girl whose ideas were confined to a provincial education. Love and misfortune had united to new mould her. Sentiment had made a rapid progress in her mind, as reason had in that of her unfortunate lover. Girls learned to feel more easily than men learned to think. Her adventure afforded her more instruction than four years of confinement in a convent. Her dress was dictated by the greatest simplicity. She viewed with horror the trappings with which she had appeared before her fatal benefactor. Her companion had taken her earrings without her having before looked at them. Charmed and confused, idolizing the Huron and detesting herself, she at length arrived at the gate of that dreadful castle, the Palace of Vengeance, where oft crimes and innocence are alike immured. When she was upon the point of getting out of the coach, her strength failed her. Some people came to her assistance. She entered, whilst her heart was in the greatest palpitation, her eyes streaming, and her whole frame bespoke the greatest consternation. She was presented to the governor. He was going to speak to her, but she had lost all power of expression. She showed her order, whilst, with the greatest difficulty, she articulated some words. The governor entertained a great esteem for his prisoner, and he was greatly pleased at his being released. His heart was not callous, like those of most of his brethren, who think of nothing but the fees their captives are to pay them, extort their revenue from their victims, and living by the misery of others, conceive a horrid joy at the lamentations of the unfortunate. He sent for the prisoner into his apartment. The two lovers swooned at the sight of each other. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives remained for a long time motionless, without any symptoms of life. The other soon recalled his fortitude. This, said the governor, is probably the lady your wife. You did not tell me you were married. I am informed that it is through her generous solicitude that you have obtained your liberty. Alas, said the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, in a faltering voice, I am not worthy of being his wife, and swooned again. When she recovered her senses, she presented, with a trembling hand, the grant and written promise of a company. The Huron, equally astonished and affected, awoke from one dream to fall into another. Why was I shut up here? How could you deliver me? Where are the monsters that immured me? You are a divinity sent from heaven to succor me. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, with a dejected look, looked at her lover, blushed, and instantly turned away her streaming eyes. In a word, they told him all she knew, and all she had undergone, except what she was willing to conceal forever, but which any other except the Huron, more accustomed to the world, and better acquainted with the customs of courts, would have easily guessed. Is it possible that a wretch like the bailiff can have deprived me of my liberty? Alas! I find that men, 
like the vilest animals, can all hurt. But is it possible that a monk, a Jesuit, the king's confessor, should have contributed to my misfortunes as much as the bailiff, without my being able to imagine under what pretense this detestable knave has persecuted me? Did he make me pass for a Jansenist? In fine, how came you to remember me? I did not deserve it. I was then only a savage. What? Could you, without advice, without assistance, undertake a journey to Versailles? You appeared there, and my fetters were broke. There must then be in beauty and virtue an invincible charm that opens the gates of the adamant and softens hearts of steel. At the word virtue, a flood of tears issued from the eyes of the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives. She did not know how far she had been virtuous in the crime which she reproached herself. Her lover thus continued, Thou angel, who has broken my chains, if you had sufficient influence, which I do not yet comprehend, to obtain justice for me, obtain it likewise for an old man who first taught me to, th to think, as you taught me to love. Misfortunes have united us. I love him as a father. I can neither live without you nor him. I solicit? The same man. Who? Yes, I will be beholden to you for everything, and I will owe nothing to any one but yourself. Write to this man in power. Overwhelm me with kindness. Complete what you have begun. Perfect your miracle. She was sensible. She ought to do everything her lover desired. She wanted to write, but her hand refused its office. She began her letter three times, and tore it up as often. At length she got to the end, and the two lovers left the prison, after having embraced the old martyr of efficacious grace. The happy yet disconsolate Mademoiselle St. Ives knew where her brother lodged. Thither she repaired, and her lover took an apartment in the same house. They had scarce reached their lodging before her protector sent the order for the releasing of the good old Gordon, at the same time making an appointment with her for the next day. Thus was every generous and laudable action of the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives performed at the price of her honour. She considered with detestation this practice of selling at once the happiness and misery of man. She gave the order of release to her lover, and refused the appointment of a benefactor whom she could see no more without expiring without shame and grief her lover could not have left her upon any other errand than to release his friend he flew to the place of his confinement and fulfilled this duty in reflecting upon the strange vicissitudes of the world and admiring the courageous virtue of a young lady to whom two unfortunate men owed more than their lives Chapter 19. The Huron, the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, and their relations are convened. A generous and respectable, but faithless girl, was with her brother, the Abbe St. Ives, the good prior of the mountain, and Lady de Kirkabon. They were equally astonished, but their situations and sentiments were very different. The Abbe de St. Ives was expiating the wrongs he had done his sister at her feet, and she pardoned him. The prior and his sympathizing sister likewise wept, but it was for joy. The filthy bailiff and his insupportable son did not trouble this affecting scene. They had set out upon the first report of their antagonist being released, and they flew to bury in their own province their folly and fear. The four dramatis personae, variously agitated, were waiting for the return of the young man who was gone to deliver his friend. The Abbe St. Ives, 
not dare raise his eyes to meet those of his sister. The good Kirkabon said, I shall then see once more my dear nephew? Yes, you will see him again, said the charming Mademoiselle St. Ives, but he is no longer the same man. His behavior, his manners, his ideas, his sense, all have undergone a complete mutation. He has become as respectable as he was ignorant and strange to everything. He will be the honor and consolation of your family, could I also be the honor of mine. What? Are you not the same as you were? said the prior. What then has happened to work so great a change? During this conversation the Huron returned with the Jansenist in hand. The scene was now changed and became more interesting. It began by the uncle and the aunt's tender embraces. The Abbe de St. Ives almost kissed the knees of the ingenuous Huron, who, by the by, was no longer ingenuous. The language of the eyes formed all the discourse of the two lovers, who, nevertheless, expressed every sentiment with which they were penetrated. Satisfaction and acknowledgment sparkled in the countenance of the one, whilst embarrassment was depicted in Mademoiselle St. Ives's melting eyes, turned somewhat sideways. Every one was astonished that she should mingle grief with so much joy. The venerable Gordon soon endeared himself to the whole family. He and the young prisoner had been unhappy together, and this was sufficient title. He owed his deliverance to the two lovers, and this alone reconciled him to love. The acrimony of his former sentiments was dismissed from his heart, and he was converted to a man, as well as the Huron. Every one related his adventures before supper. The two abbés and the aunt listened like children to the relation of stories of ghosts, and like men all interested in so many calamities. Alas, said Gordon, there are perhaps upwards of five hundred virtuous people in the same fetters as Mademoiselle St. Ives has broken. Their misfortunes are unknown. Many hands are found to strike the unhappy multitude, but seldom one to succor them. This just reflection increased his sensibility and gratitude. Everything heightened the triumph of the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives. The grandeur and intrepidity of her soul were the subject of each one's admiration. The admiration was blended with that respect which we feel, despite ourselves, for a person we think has some influence at court. But the Abbe de St. Ives sometimes said, What could my sister do to obtain this influence so soon? Supper was ready, and every one seated very early, when, lo, the worthy confidant of Versailles arrived without being acquainted with anything that had happened. She was in a coach and six, and it was easily seen to whom the equipage belonged. She entered with the air of authority assumed by people in power who have a great deal of business saluted the company with much indifference, and pulling the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives on one side, said, Why do you make people wait so long? Follow me. There are diamonds you forgot. However softly soever she uttered these expressions, the Huron nevertheless overheard them. He saw the diamonds. The brother was speechless. The uncle and the aunt showed that kind of surprise common to good people who had never before beheld such magnificence the young man, whose mind was now formed by twelve months of reflection, could not help making some against his will, and was for a moment in anxiety. 
His mistress perceived it, and a mortal paleness spread itself over her countenance. A tremor seized her, and it was with difficulty that she supported herself. "'Ah, madam,' said she to her fatal friend, "'you have ruined me. You have given me the mortal blow.' These words pierced the heart of the Huron, but he had already learned to possess himself. He did not dwell upon them, lest he should make his mistress uneasy before her brother, but turn pale as well as her. Mademoiselle St. Ives, distracted with the change she perceived in her lover's countenance, pulled the woman out of the room into the passage, and there threw the jewels at her feet, saying, Alas! You know they were not my seducers, but he that gave them to me shall never set eyes on me again. A friend took them up, whilst Mademoiselle St. Ives added, He may either take them again, or give them to you, be gone, and do not make me still more odious to myself. The female ambassador at length returned, not being able to comprehend the remorse to which she had been witness. The beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, greatly oppressed, and feeling a revolution in her body that almost suffocated her, was compelled to go to bed. But that she might not alarm any one, she kept her pains and sufferings to herself, and, under pretense of only being weary, she asked leave to take a little rest. This, however, she did not do till she had reanimated the company with the consolatory and flattering expressions, and cast such a look upon her lover as darted fire into his soul. The supper, which she was not fond of, was in the beginning gloomy, but this gloominess was of that interesting kind that affords attracting and useful conversation, so superior to that frivolous joy sought for, and which is usually nothing more than a troublesome noise. Gordon, in a few words, gave the history of Jansenism and Molinism, of those persecutions with which one party hampered the other, and of the obstinacy of both. The Huron entered into a criticism thereupon, pitying those men who, not satisfied with all the confusion occasioned by their opposite interests, create evils by imaginary interests and unintelligible absurdities. Gordon related, the other judged, the guest listened with emotion, and gained new lights. The length of misfortunes and the shortness of life then became the topics. It was remarked that all professions have peculiar vices and dangers annexed to them, and that from the prince down to the lowest beggar all seem alike to accuse providence. How happens it that so many men, for so little, perform the office of persecutor, sergeants, and executioners to others? With what inhuman indifference does a man in place sign the destruction of a family, and with what joy still more barbarous do mercenaries execute them i saw in my youth said the good old gordon a relation of the marshal de marillac being persecuted in his own province on account of that illustrious but unfortunate man concealed himself under a borrowed name in paris he was an old man near seventy-two years of age his wife who accompanied him was nearly of the same age. They had had a libertine son who, at fourteen years of age, absconded from his father's house, turned soldier, and deserted. He had gone through every gradation of debauchery and misery. At length, having changed his name, he was in the guards of Cardinal Richelieu, 
for this priest, as well as Mazarin, had guards, and had obtained an exempt staff in their company of sergeants. This adventurer was appointed to arrest the old man and his wife, and acquitted himself with all the obduracy of a man who was willing to please his master. As he was conducting them, he heard these two victims deplore the long succession of miseries which had befallen them from their cradle. This aged couple reckoned as one of their greatest misfortunes the wildness and loss of their son. He recollected them, but he nevertheless led them to prison assuring them that his reverence was to be served in preference to everybody else. His eminence rewarded his zeal. I have seen a spy of Father de la Chaise betray his own brother in hopes of a little benefice which he did not obtain, and I saw him die, not of remorse, but of grief at having been cheated by the Jesuit. The vocation of a confessor, which I for a long while exercised, made me acquainted with the secrets of families. I have known very few who, though immersed in the greatest distress, did not externally wear the mask of felicity and every appearance of joy. And I have always observed that great grief was the fruit of our unconstrained desires. For my part, said the Huron, I imagine that a noble, grateful, and sensible man may always be happy and I doubt not but to enjoy an uncheckered felicity with the charming, generous Mademoiselle St. Ives. For I flatter myself, added he, in addressing himself to her brother with a friendly smile, that you will not now refuse me as you did last year. Besides, I shall pursue a more decent method. The abbé was confounded in apologies for the past, and in protesting an eternal attachment. Uncle Kirkabon said this would be the most glorious day of his whole life. His good aunt, in ecstasies and floods of joy, cried out, I always said you would never be a subdeacon. This sacrament is preferable to the other. Would to God I had been honored with it. But I shall serve you as a mother. And now every one vied with each other in applauding gentle Mademoiselle St. Ives. Her lover's heart was too full of what she had done for him, and he loved her too much for the affair of the jewels to make any predominant impression on him. But those words which he too well heard, you have given me the mortal blow, still secretly terrified him, and he interrupted all his joy, whilst the compliments paid his beautiful mistress still increased his love. In a word, nothing was thought of but her nothing was mentioned but the happiness those two lovers deserved a plan was agitated to live together in paris and schemes of grandeur and fortitude succeeded these hopes which the smallest ray of happiness engenders strongly operated but the huron felt in the secret recess of his heart a sentiment that exploded this illusion he read over the promises signed by saint Ange and the commission signed by Louvois, these men were painted to him such as they were, or such as they were thought to be. Every one spoke of the ministers and the administration, the freedom of convivial conversation, which is considered in France as the most precious liberty to be obtained on earth. If I were king of France, said the Huron, this is the kind of minister that I would choose for the war department. I would have a man of the highest birth, as he is to give orders to the nobility, I would require that he should be himself an officer, and pass through the various gradations, or at least 
that he had attained the rank of lieutenant-general, and was worthy of being a marshal of France. For is it not necessary that he should have served himself, be acquainted with the details of service? And will not officers obey with a hundred times more acrility a military man, who, like themselves, has been singleized by his courage, than a mere man of the cabinet, who at most can only guess at the operations of a campaign, let him have ever so great a share of sense. I should not be displeased at my minister's generosity, even though it might sometimes embarrass a little the keeper of the royal treasure. I should choose him to have a facility in business, and that he should distinguish himself by that kind of gaiety of mind which is the lot of a man superior to business, so agreeable to the nation, and which renders the performance of every duty less irksome. This is the character he would have chosen for a minister, as he had constantly observed that such an amiable disposition is incompatible with cruelty. Monsieur de Lavoie would not, perhaps, have been satisfied with the Huron's wishes. His merit lay in a different walk, but whilst they were still at table, the disorder of this unhappy girl took a fatal turn. Her blood was on fire, the symptoms of a malignant fever had appeared. She suffered, but did not complain, unwilling to disturb the pleasure of the guests. Her brother, knowing that she was not asleep, went to the foot of her bed. He was astonished at the condition he found her in. Everybody flew to her. Her lover appeared next to her brother. He was certainly the most alarmed and the most affected of any one, but he had learned to unite discretion to all the happy gifts nature had bestowed upon him, and a quick sensibility of decorum began to prevail over him. A neighboring physician was immediately sent for. He was one of those itinerant doctors who confound the last disorder they consulted upon with the present, and who follow a blind practice in a science for which the most mature investigation and justest observations do not preclude uncertainty and danger. He greatly increased the disorder by prescribing a fashionable nostrum. Can fashion extend to medicine? This frenzy was then all too prevalent in Paris. The grief of Mademoiselle St. Ives contributed still more than her physician to render her disorder fatal. Her body suffered martyrdom in the torments of her mind. The crowd of thoughts which agitated her breast communicated to her veins a more dangerous poison than the most burning fever. CHAPTER Twenty: THE DEATH OF THE BEAUTIFUL MADEMOISELLE ST. IVES AND ITS CONSEQUENCES Another physician was called in. This, instead of assisting nature, and leaving it to act in a young person whose organs recalled the vital stream, applied himself solely to counteract the effects of his brother's prescription. The disorder in two days became mortal. The brain, which is thought to be the seat of the mind, was as violently afflicted as the heart, which, we are told, is the seat of passion. By what incomprehensible mechanism are the organs in subjection to sentiment and thought? How is it that a single melancholy idea shall disturb the whole course of the blood, and that the blood should, in turn, communicate its irregularities to the human understanding? What is that unknown fluid which certainly exists, and quicker and more active than light, flies in less than the twinkling of an eye into all the channels of life, produces sensations, memory, joy or grief, 
reason or frenzy recalls with horror what we would choose to forget and renders a thinking animal either the subject of admiration or an object of pity and compassion these were the reflections of the good old gordon and these observations so natural which men seldom make did not prevent his feelings upon the occasion he was not of the number of those gloomy philosophers who pique themselves upon being insensible he was affected at the fate of this young woman like a father who sees his dear child yielding to a slow death the abbe st ives was desperate the prior and his sister shed floods of tears but who could describe the situation of her lover all expression falls short of the summit of his affliction and language here proves its imperfection his aunt almost lifeless supported the head of the departing fair one in her feeble arms her brother was upon his knees at the foot of the bed her lover squeezed her hand which he bathed in tears his groans rent the air whilst he called her his guardian angel his life his hope his better half his mistress his wife at the word wife a sigh escaped her whilst she looked upon him with inexpressible tenderness and then abruptly gave a horrid scream presently in one of those intervals when grief the oppression of the senses and pain subside and leave the soul its liberty and powers she cried out i your wife ah dear lover this name this happiness this felicity were not distant from me i die and deserve it o god my heart o you whom i have sacrificed to infernal demons it is done i am punished live and be happy these tender dreadful expressions were incomprehensible yet they melted and terrified every heart she had the courage to explain herself and her auditors quaked with astonishment grief and pity they with one voice detested the man in power who repaired a shocking act of injustice only by his crimes and who had forced the most amiable innocence to be his accomplice who you guilty said her lover no you are not guilt can only be in the heart yours is devoted solely to virtue and to me this opinion he corroborated by such expressions as seemed to recall the beautiful mademoiselle st ives back to life she felt some consolation from them and was astonished at being still beloved the aged gordon would have condemned her at the time he was only a jansenist but having attained wisdom he esteemed her and wept in the midst of these lamentations and fears whilst the dangerous situation of this worthy girl engrossed every breast and all were in the greatest consternation a courier arrived from court a courier from whom and upon what account he was sent by the king's confessor to the prior of the mountain it was not father de la chaise who wrote but brother vadbled his valet de chambre a man of great consequence at that time who acquainted the archbishops with the reverend father's pleasure who gave audience promised benefices and sometimes issued letters de cachet he wrote to the abbe of the mountain that his reverence had been informed of his nephew's exploits that his being sent to prison was thought a mistake that such little disgraces frequently happened and should therefore not be attended to and in fine 
it behooved him, the prior, to come and present his nephew the next day, that he was to bring with him that good man Gordon, and that he, brother that bled, should introduce them to his reverence and Monsieur de Lavoie, who would say a word to them in his antechamber, to which he added that the history of the Huron and his combat against the English had been related to the king, that doubtless the king would deign to take notice of him in passing through the gallery, and perhaps might even nod his head to him. The letter concluded by flattering him with hopes that all the ladies of the court would show their eagerness to send for his nephew to their toilettes, and that several among them would say to him, Good day, Mr. Huron, and that he was certainly to be talked of at the king's supper. The letter was signed, Your affectionate brother Jesuit, that bled. The prior, having read the letter aloud, his furious nephew for a moment suppressed his rage and said nothing to the bearer, but turning towards the companion of his misfortunes, asked him what he thought of that style. Gordon replied, This, then, is the way that men are treated like monkeys. They are first beaten, and then they dance. The Huron, resuming his character, which always returned in the great emotions of his soul, tore the letter to bits, and threw them in the courier's face. There is my answer, said he. His uncle, in terrors, who fancied he saw thunderbolts and twenty letters de cachet at once fall upon him, immediately wrote the best excuse he could for these transports of passion in a young man which he considered as ebullitions of a great soul. But a solicitude of a more melancholy stamp now seized every heart. The beautiful and unfortunate Mademoiselle St. Ives was already sensible of her approaching end. She was serene, but it was that kind of shocking serenity, the effect of exhausted nature, no longer able to withstand the conflict. Oh, my dear lover, said she in a faltering voice, death punishes me for my weakness, and I expire with the consolation of knowing you are free. I adore you whilst I betrayed you. I adore you in bidding you an eternal adieu. She did not make a parade of a ridiculous fortitude. She did not understand that miserable glory of having some of her neighbors say she died with courage. Who, at twenty, can be at once torn from her lover, from life, and from what is called honor, without regret, without some pangs? She felt all the horror of her situation, and made it felt by those expiring looks and words which speak with so much energy. In a word, she shed tears like other people at those intervals that she was capable of giving vent to them. Let others strive to celebrate the pompous deaths of those who insensibly rush into destruction. This is the lot of all animals. We die like them only when age or disorders make us resemble them by the stupidity of our organs. Whoever suffers a great loss, if they are stilted, it is nothing but vanity that is pursued, even in the arms of death. When the fatal moment came, all around her feelingly expressed their grief by incessant tears and lamentations. The Huron was senseless. Great souls fear more violently sensations than those of less tender dispositions. 
the good old Gordon knew enough of him to make him dread that when he came to himself he would be guilty of suicide. All kinds of arms were put out of his way, which the unfortunate young man perceived. He said to his relations and Gordon, without shedding any tears, without a groan, without the least emotion, Do you then think that any one upon earth hath right and power to prevent my putting an end to my life? Gordon took care to avoid making a parade of those commonplace declamations whereby it is endeavoured to be proved that we are not allowed to exercise our liberty in ceasing to be when we are in a shocking situation, that we may not leave the house when we can no longer remain in it, that a man is on earth like a soldier at his post, as if it signified to the being of beings whether the conjunction of particles of matter were in one spot or another impotent reasons to which a firm and contemplated despair disdains to listen, and to which Cato replied only with the use of a poignard. The Huron's sullen and dreadful silence, his doleful aspect, his trembling lips, and the shivering of his whole frame to every spectator's soul communicated that mixture of compassion and terror which fetters all its powers, precludes discourse, and is only uttered by faltering words. The hostess and her family came running. They trembled to behold the state of his desperation, yet all kept their eyes upon him and attended to all his motions. The ice-cold corpse of the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives had already been carried into the lower hall, out of the sight of her lover, who seemed still in search of it, though incapable of observing any object. In the midst of the spectacle of death, whilst the dead body was exposed at the door of the house, whilst two priests by the side of a holy water pot were repeating prayers with an air of distraction, whilst some passengers, through idleness, sprinkled the beer with some drops of holy water, and others went their ways quite indifferent, whilst her parents were drowned in tears, and every one thought the lover would not survive his loss. In this situation, Saint-Poange arrived with his female Versailles friend. His transitory taste having been but once gratified, it became a fixed passion. A refusal of his generous gifts had piqued his pride. Father de la Chaise would never have suggested the thought of coming into this house, but Saint-Poange, having constantly before his eyes the image of the beautiful Mademoiselle St. Ives, burning to satisfy a passion which, by a single enjoyment, had fixed in his heart the poignancy of desire, did not hesitate coming himself in search of her, whom he would not, perhaps, have been inclined to see a third time, had she come to him of her own accord. He alighted from his coach, and the first object that presented itself was a beer. He turned away his eyes, with that simple distaste of a man, bred up in pleasures, and who thinks he should avoid the spectacle which might recall him to the contemplation of human misery. He is inclined to go upstairs, whilst his female friend inquires, through curiosity, whose funeral it was. The name of Mademoiselle St. Ives is pronounced. At this name she turned and gave a shocking shriek. 
Saint-Paul-Ange now returns, while surprise and grief possess his soul. The good old Gordon stood with streaming eyes. He for a moment ceased his lamentations to acquaint the courtier with all the circumstances of this melancholy catastrophe. He spoke with that authority which is the companion to sorrow and virtue. Saint-Paul-Ange was not naturally wicked. The torrent of business and amusements had turned away his soul, which was not yet acquainted with itself. He did not border upon that grey age which usually hardens the hearts of ministers. He listened to Gordon with a downcast look, and some tears escaped him which he was surprised to shed. In a word, he repented. "'I will,' said he, absolutely see this extraordinary man you have mentioned to me. He affects me almost as much as this innocent victim whose death I have been the occasion of. Gordon followed him as far as the chamber, where were the prior, Kirkabon, the abbe, St. Ives, and some neighbors who were recalling to life the young man who had again fainted. I have been the cause of your misfortunes, said this deputy minister and my whole life shall be employed in making reparation. The first idea that struck the Huron was to kill him, and then destroy himself. Nothing was more suitable to the circumstances. But he was without arms, and closely watched. St. Poange was now rebuked with refusals, accompanied with reproach, contempt, and the insults he deserved, which were lavished upon him. Time softens everything. Monsieur de Lavoie at length succeeded in making an excellent officer of the Huron, who has appeared under another name at Paris, and in the army applauded by all honest men as being at once a warrior and an intrepid philosopher. He never mentioned his adventure without being greatly affected, and yet his greatest consolation was to speak of it. He cherished the memory of his beloved Mademoiselle St. Ives to the last moment of his life. The Abbe St. Ives and the prior were each provided with good livings. The good Kirkabon rather chose to see his nephew invested with military honors than in a subdeaconry. The devotee of Versailles kept the diamond earrings, and received besides a handsome present. Father Tutatus had presents of chocolate, coffee, and confectionery, with the meditations of the Reverend Father Croisset in the flower of the saints, bound in Morocco. Good old Gordon lived with the Huron till his death in the most friendly intimacy. He also had a benefice, and forgot for ever effectual grace in the concomitant concourse. He took for his motto, Misfortunes are of some use. How many worthy people are there in the world who may justly say, misfortunes are good for nothing? The end of the sincere Huron or l'Ingenue by Voltaire. This reading by Roy Schreiber has been based upon the translation by Francis Ashmore.